0: Welcome to Innovation Hub, I'm Kara Miller. On April 24th, after weeks of being shut down, hairstylists, bowling alleys, and gyms were among the first businesses to reopen in Georgia. Restaurants followed a few days later. Most other states were still largely closed, and polls showed a majority of Americans were willing to deal with the closures for longer. But Georgia's governor, Brian Kemp, thought reopening was the way to go. About a thousand miles north at MIT, Sinan Aral
1: was watching. It created an influx of a half a million people traveling into Georgia to get their haircuts and go to bars and restaurants because South Carolina, Tennessee, Alabama were closed.
0: Aral is a professor of management and he directs MIT's initiative on the digital economy.
1: So that interstate travel that's created by ad hoc policy, we could see it in the mobility data of cell phones traveling across state borders.
0: Aral was working with social media companies to figure out what people do, not just what they say. And in the case of Georgia, while lots of people were willing to stay hunkered down, apparently lots of other people wanted a haircut. And they were willing to drive quite a ways to get one which taught Aral something crucial about public policies around coronavirus.
1: The effects of a state's policies are interdependent with other states' policies, and that therefore an uncoordinated or ad hoc approach to regulating COVID mobility is not going to work in the United States. It's going to create a ricocheting of the pandemic backwards and forwards as some states remain open and some close, and then these close, and then the other ones reopen.
0: Travel, he found, did not seem to deter people who wanted to eat out at a restaurant or go bowling. Georgia, for example, was a big influence on neighboring South Carolina, even if Governor Kemp had no power over the decisions that South Carolina made, which to some degree makes sense. But even more surprising to our rawl was another nugget nestled in the research. Some states had tremendous influence on states that were hundreds or thousands thousands of miles away.
1: So you may be surprised to find that the number one state that influences Florida citizens' mobility the most is New York. And that has very little to do with travel. It has to do with the fact that people are influencing each other over Facebook.
0: Social media was helping Aral track people anonymously as they traveled, as they made decisions. And it was unearthing some strange realities about the effectiveness of policy decisions during a pandemic. Indeed, Aral argues, the power of social media right now is skyrocketing, and it impacts our lives in all sorts of ways that may be hard to fathom, even if you are not much of a user of Facebook or Twitter or Instagram. That impact started in March as people just began to disappear from the downtowns of Chicago and Houston and Seattle.
1: As we scurried off the streets, we all scurried online. And in fact, all of the social media companies broke records week after week after week. The engineers at Facebook wrote a blog post saying, we are breaking records every week. Slack CEO uh, had a Twitter thread that said, you know, we are amassing new users at a rate I've never seen before. Essentially, their use looked like a hockey stick if you were to graph it. And Mark Zuckerberg said, and I quote, we're just trying to keep the lights on over here.
0: Aral is the author of the book, The Hype Machine, How Social Media Disrupts Our Elections, Our Economy, and Our Health, and How We Must Adapt. And he says, one of the long-term effects of COVID, when we look back, will be that it drove more people than ever into the arms of Slack and Instagram and Facebook. Now, some of those people were reluctant users. They were slow adopters. And many will never leave. The ability, then, of this technology to change minds politically, to understand what we want socially, it's been supercharged. This is not, Aral argues, a side conversation. It's not a tech conversation. It's actually one of the most powerful forces shaping our world. And in some sense, we have to evolve to coexist with it.
1: I don't think it's any surprise to anyone the potential harm that social media can cause if we don't adapt. The need
0: for that adaptation became increasingly clear to Aral several years ago when he studied how news spreads on Twitter.
1: And so when we looked into that data, we had labeled news stories that were labeled true, some that were labeled false, and we looked at the differences in the spreading rates of true and false stories, and we found that false news traveled farther, faster, deeper, and more broadly than the truth in every category of information.
0: And why was that? Were liars maybe more popular than people who were telling the truth? Maybe they had more followers? Not even close.
1: People who were spreading false news had fewer followers, followed fewer people, were less often verified, less active, had been on Twitter for less time. So then we looked into other explanations, and we came up with what we call the novelty hypothesis. So if you look into what draws human attention, novelty tends to draw human attention. And we also gain in status when we share novel information. And we measured the novelty of false news compared to true news. We found it was way more novel than the truth, and that was associated with the 70% greater likelihood of retweeting false news than true news. So novelty has a big role to play.
0: Aral and his colleagues also found that there was a strange dance going on between real people tweeting out fake stuff and then fake accounts going in to make that message louder. One of the first moments that seemed to reveal how this process of amplification worked occurred in the winter of 2014, when Vladimir Putin decided to send Russians into the Ukraine to annex Crimea.
1: And what we found was that there was essentially an attempt to uh, distort reality. And the reason for that was, if a country can change the perception of what's going on on the ground, say, in Crimea, both for the local population and for the international community, they can reframe what's happening Hmm. as not being an annexation, but rather an accession. In other words, well, the population here wants to join Russia. And therefore, we're just helping the vast majority of people who want to be part of Russia. And actually, the Obama doctrine stopped short of intervening in Crimea and instead imposed economic sanctions. And you can imagine that when you're making a decision like that, whether this is an accession or an annexation is going to change your perception of should I intervene or should I do something a little bit less dramatic?
0: Hmm from where you sit, uh, knowing so much about social media, what do you see in terms of what the Russians are doing in 2020 in terms of our election?
1: Well, it is much more sophisticated than it was in 2016. So now what they're doing is, instead of using fake accounts, they are nudging actual U.S. citizens to promote false narratives themselves. And the reason for that is because the platforms have policies against inauthentic accounts and inauthentic identities. So instead of using fake accounts, they want to take real U.S. citizens and encourage them to start and spread false propaganda and manipulative content. The second thing that they've done is that they've moved their servers to U.S. soil. And the reason for that is because surveillance, domestic surveillance is banned or severely restricted in the United States. So our intelligence agencies have a much harder legal time to sort of surveil servers on US soil as they do servers on foreign soil. So they've moved their operations. They have infiltrated Iran's cyber war department, perhaps to launch attacks through Iran. And by the way, the U.S. intelligence community is unanimous in indicating that Russia is interfering hmm. currently in the, in the 2020 election, that they have become more sophisticated, that they are engaging in new tactics and strategies to make their manipulation more effective and more elusive. And it's going on as we speak.
0: Um, I want to go back like 10, 15 years to when the social media age really sort of began in earnest, lots of people thought if we can communicate with each other, if we can share pictures, this would be a great thing. What do you think that that promise of early social media was? Like what, what did people see in it that, that was amazing?
1: Well, I mean, I think that the that the promise of, of this connectivity is that Human beings' progress is largely related to our ability to collaborate, coordinate, and cooperate with each other at scale. So, our brains have evolved to be a social species. We are by far the most social species on the planet with regard to the complexity of our social relationships, our ability to form organizations, our ability to cooperate internationally in loose networks of human beings working together to achieve great things. And if we could create a communication system that decentralized and enabled this at scale, that we would be able to create economic value, public health value, openness and sort of freedom of speech, etc., in a way that is not achievable through state-sponsored and or broadcast media that is a kind of one-to-many medium. And to a large extent, those promises, quote-unquote, are real and can mm. be realized at a local level today. You see lots of small businesses operating almost entirely on social media. You see public health organizations combating pandemics through social media. You see outreach efforts through social media. You see tremendous ability to garner donations for causes through social media, be it uh, disaster relief or adoptions or blood drives or get out the vote drives. You also see a tremendous amount of first responders' use of social media in a natural disaster, and so on. So there's a lot of potential that comes from our ability to collaborate, cooperate, and coordinate at scale with kind of a central nervous system that has blanketed the planet. But the real concern is what are the signals that are going over that social system? Are they positive or negative? Are we creating a pollution of our communications ecosystem? Or are we keeping it clean? In some sense, the pollution analogy is apt because you know the ability to communicate depends on what you're communicating in terms of whether it's good or bad.
0: Do you think that our brains have a certain vulnerability to social media in a way that is distinct from a lot of other technologies?
1: I have a seven-year-old son. Uh, And so I think every day about what is the impact of digital technology on his brain. And I also think about the notion that Steve Jobs wouldn't let his kids play with the iPad.
0: I was going to ask you about that. Like, I wonder, I mean, you've spent a lot of time with tech folks. Do you feel like tech folks more than other people either try to keep themselves or their kids off of social media?
1: Well, I had been limiting my son's access to digital technology very well prior to COVID. Okay. But once he started going to school online in yeah. in in, right. in the spring, it became even more difficult to do that. And when I researched the book, I found a couple of things. First is that what you see is that social media is designed for our brains. When you look into the history of human evolution in terms of the brain's evolution, you realize that a very large explanation why the human brain is so big relative to our body weight or why the neocortex is so large relative to the rest of the brain is because of our evolving need to process social signals. Our sociality, our ability to process social signals is a big part of our brain's development over millions of years. When you realize that, you realize that the invention of social media, which creates a population-scale cacophony of social signals, is like throwing a lit match into a pool of gasoline. Because our brains evolved to process those signals, now we're processing them at a rate like we've never seen before. That combined with the dopamine response system, where we get social rewards likes, comments, etc., from engaging with social media. And you hear Sean Parker being interviewed in 2017 saying, oh, yeah, we exactly designed social media to give you those dopamine hits so that okay. we could keep you coming back for more. With the like, re-
0: awareness of that addiction, kind of. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. We,
1: that is part of our business model, was essentially his answer to Mike Allen in 2017. With that awareness, you realize, wow, we are incredibly neurologically susceptible to this technology. Now, contrast that with studies of a completely different nature in terms of neuroscience, which is the impact of meditation. So, meditators have an ability to quiet what's known as the default network. The default network is our thinking of ourselves and ourselves in relation to others. Social media does the opposite. It activates the default network, the network that thinks about ourselves and ourselves in relation to others. And you suddenly realize that this technology is designed to hype us up. And that's why I call it the hype machine, because its business model is based on engagement. And to engage us, it needs to give us the neurological impulses to continue to post, to continue to want more. And that's exactly how it's designed.
0: To, to, to think about ourselves, like all the time. To, really? think about
1: our, uh, to think about ourselves and our relations to others. In yes. other words, what when do we you, get- What do you yeah. think
0: of me? <laughs> Not like me and what do you think of me?
1: Exactly, exactly. Right, right. So, so, and, and that's what likes, comments, and 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 shares are all about on social media. And yeah. if you, there've been a number of studies that hooked people up to fMRI machines that Uh, measure electrical impulses in the brain while using social media apps like an Instagram-style app or other types of apps. Uh, And the things that you learn from those studies are absolutely fascinating. So, for instance, when our kids see likes on content that displays risky behavior, it dampens the parts of the brain that tend to inhibit our mm. desire to do those behaviors. So it sort of turns down our natural risk aversion to risky behaviors when we see more likes on them.
0: Interesting. So let's, um, let's pause here for a second. Uh, when we come back, the promise of social media, whether we should maybe break up some of the big companies, and how this force that has been unleashed is just going to keep shaping our world, whether we're fans of it or not. From GBH Radio and PRX, I'm Kara Miller, and this is Innovation Hub. Welcome back to Innovation Hub. I'm Kara Miller. One of the main organizers of the 1963 March on Washington, Bayard Rustin, had been thinking about doing a major DC march since the
1: 1940s. We need in every community a group of angelic troublemakers. Our power is in our ability to make
0: things unworkable. So when the 1963 march finally came together with something like a quarter million people in attendance, it was in part because organizers had been contemplating how to pull this off for a long time. More recently, though, protests have come together much faster, and often the crowds have been strikingly large. The 2017 Women's March, which was also in DC, drew something like half a million people, even though it was in reaction to an election that had only happened a few months before. This shift is in part because of a technology that's so powerful it may be changing how humans evolve
1: social media. We've seen it with the snow revolution in Russia, the Arab Spring, Ukraine, Hong Kong. Now we're seeing it with Black Lives Matter in the United States.
0: Sanan Aral is the head of MIT's Initiative on the Digital Economy, and he's the author of the book, The Hype Machine, How Social Media Disrupts Our Elections, Our Economy, and Our Health, and How We Must Adapt. He argues, whether you love Twitter, connect with cousins on Facebook, or just have no use for social media platforms, they're changing our world, how we connect and organize what we believe politically, and just about everything else. They're even magnifying our ability to gather data on what changes human minds.
1: So there have been 61 million person experiments of the impact of Facebook on voting, There have been uh, studies conducted about the impact of uh, social media on exercise and health behaviors, you know, with 15 million people in them.
0: Which means that the online world is both measuring and affecting our real lives in ways that are hard to grasp. But Aral says that's only because we're caught in the middle of a seismic shift.
1: We have seen through large-scale studies that social media has tremendous leverage to influence opinions and behaviors in the physical world, whether it is people's confidence in vaccinations or exercise or voting or donations. One example is when Nepal experienced the greatest earthquake in terms of magnitude, that it experienced in 100 years, Facebook raised from 770,000 people for aid relief more than the United States and the European Union gave to Nepal combined. So,
0: how do you start to peel away the good stuff? The earthquake relief, the ability to organize peaceful protests. How do you peel that away from health misinformation and political falsehoods? It's doable, Aral says. And you have to start by creating more competition. There's too much power vested in big companies right now. But the idea of breaking companies up, which a lot has been written about, it isn't a silver bullet, he argues. And it doesn't make sense to him.
1: This is an economy that runs on network effects. And economies that run on network effects tend to tip towards monopolies unless you have structural reform of the economy itself. So if you break up one company, the next company is just going to tip into a monopoly because you haven't done the work of structurally reforming the economy.
0: What you need, he says, are a whole bunch of regulations addressing issues from advertising to hate speech, plus something called interoperability which I had never heard of, but I've used it. So you know how when you go get a new phone and you decide to switch to a different carrier, you know how you keep your phone number and you keep all your contacts? Well, if you left Facebook, kind of like you might leave your cell phone carrier, and you wanted to take all your posts with you to another competing site, how easily could you do that?
1: It's... Kind of strange to think about that in the context of social media, but how strange is it to think about that? I would call you from my Verizon phone to your Sprint phone and not even think about that. Imagine if I had to say, oh, I really want to call Kara, but she's on Sprint, so I can't call her, which is, it just sounds weird in the context of cell phones, but the opposite sounds weird in the context of social networks. And the reason is because we don't have interoperability legislation in social networks, but we do in cell phones.
0: So Aral says, the idea is don't break up Facebook. Instead, allow people to take their info with them like they do when they change their phone carrier.
1: And when we can do that, then the companies have to compete with each other to provide the experience that we like the most. Right now, Facebook doesn't really have to compete for our attention. And so Even though we can be up in arms about all of the harms uh, that Facebook is creating, they don't have an incentive to fix those harms as much as they would if we could so easily switch to a competitor.
0: There does remain a problem, though. Wouldn't there be a race to the bottom between companies? A drive to show you the most salacious stuff in order to hook you? Aral says he actually doesn't think that's how it would play out
1: when we have competition, the best sort of most effective leaders of the new social age will be the ones that realize that the long-term profit incentive of the platforms that they're running is aligned with the positive social values of society rather than competing. What do I mean? Well, if I want to maximize short-term revenue, if I'm Mark Zuckerberg or Jack Dorsey, I might want to promote fake news to promote you know, short-term engagement to sell a few more ads. But if I know that people are going to leave my platform in droves because it's polluted with fake news and spam and discrimination right. and genocidal propaganda... Or they're
0: scared for their kids and they're, they're like, scared you can for go on kids. this one, but you, you can't go on this one.
1: Great example. And I might do that myself with yep. my son. Um, then they'd realize that, wow, In a market with a lot of competition, I might maximize short-term engagement, but I'm going to lose a lot of people in the long run, and that's not sustainable. What I need to do is provide a wholesome, healthy communication environment in order to keep people engaged with my platform over the long run. That is long-run profit maximizing in a competitive market. And the leaders of the new social age, as I call it, that realize that the society's values And the long-term profit-maximizing shareholder value of the platform is actually aligned are the ones that are going to succeed.
0: Is there a chance that we are going to get more competition, which is kind of like your recommendation for how to make social media better? Is there um, a chance that's going to happen?
1: There is legislation pending in the U.S. Congress right now, for instance, the Access Act, which would force platforms over a hundred million users to make their platforms interoperable with each other. Okay. There are also grassroots efforts at the platforms to approach data portability, etc. We currently don't have it. When Mark Zuckerberg was in front of the Congress and uh, Senator Kennedy asked him, you know can I, can I uh, down you know, can I take my social network uh, off of Facebook?" And, and Mark Zuckerberg said, well, yes, Senator, you can, there's a download your network button. But when you press that button, you get a, a, a list of your friends on a piece of paper, which is useless. Yeah. What you need is a extensible, portable, interoperable data that can then just seamlessly send messages between social networks. And that's what things like the Access Act would require,
0: Do you feel like we're looking at a technology that is more powerful than technologies that have come before? Is this different from the telephone, from the television? You know, is this a case of, well, every 30 years people kind of panic as new tech gets introduced or is this something very different?
1: So, look, I think that this is possibly the most consequential technology That we have seen definitely in the last two decades, along with the rise of machine learning and artificial intelligence, I think that this layer of connectivity amongst human beings has tremendous potential for both good and evil. And I think that we really need to pay attention. I think this is, you know, social media is not just, you know, pictures of chihuahuas that look like blueberry muffins. Mm. Social media is the pipes through which misinformation, hate speech, incitements to violence, polarization, but also economic opportunity, life-saving information, you know mobilization, uh, relief efforts, etc can flow. And we've created this central nervous system of humanity. The question now is what are we going to do with it
0: Sanan Aral is the director of the MIT Initiative on the Digital Economy. He's the author of The Hype Machine How Social Media Disrupts Our Elections, Our Economy, and Our Health, and How We Must Adapt. Sanan, thank you so much.
1: Thanks, Kara. I appreciate it.
0: And on our website, we've got more from Sanan, including studies he's been doing using social media to understand how we've changed in the age of COVID. Plus, we're going to have some views on the wisdom of breaking up social media companies. From those who think it is the only way to go, to those who advise, maybe don't do it. That's all at innovationhub.org. We also want to hear from you. Do you see social media altering society in unexpected ways? Maybe changing culture? What have you seen in your own life? You can email us, innovationhub at wgbh.org.